0: I don't know about all of you, but Burdettes love road trips, right? We're just, we're we're born and bred to it. We love the adventure of a rambling journey around a couple of states, looking for unique uh, or unusual things to see and do. And of course, always good food to eat. Last couple of years, we have road trip through parts of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, believe it or not. Uh, Upstate New York, Eastern Kentucky, and Ohio. And we always try to get a good variety of activities on every road trip. We try to balance some historical sites, some cultural sites, some natural wonders, and some stuff that's just fun. Because that way, we don't all have to love every stop equally, but there's always something to look forward to tomorrow. Last year, our spring break trip was was a barbecue tour of South Carolina. It's been a week driving across the state. We we enjoyed the history and charm of Charleston. We we enjoyed going to like the only the only place where you grow tea in in the United States. We we strolled a Revolutionary War battlefield, we did an aquarium, we did a zoo, and thanks to Yelp, we ate a lot of really good barbecue. They have more sauces in that state than probably the rest of the country combined and they're all very different and good so i recommend the barbecue there um, there's always a basic plan for our road trips you know we know what cities we're going to we usually know what days we're going to get there have a list usually a mile long of possible things to do in each place but the plans are always flexible right they change depending on our mood uh, energy level uh... traffic uh... and we leave time for the unexpected Right? The things that you wouldn't read about in a in a book of the top five things to do, but they're the unexpected diversions and unique discoveries. Because these are, I think, the real joy of a road trip, right? That that you have sort of this variety of activities, some of which you never imagined you would have. For the next couple of months, we are going to be on a road trip as a church. No, we're not gonna load up on the bus and head for the Carolinas, though. I'm definitely open for some barbecue today. We are instead going to be taking a road trip with Jesus. Luke 9.51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus became determined and set out on a journey to Jerusalem to his appointment with a cross. What would be the single most important event in all of human history. But the interesting thing about his road trip, and it's very much like a classic road trip, is that while he could have walked to Jerusalem in just a a few days, this road trip occupies 10 chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And very clearly, it takes a lot longer than a few days. And very clearly, Jesus does not take the direct route. In fact, he is all over the map of Israel in the course of this road trip. He's clearly in no specific hurry. He knows when he's got to get there, right? That was to fulfill prophecy. But, But the pace at which he gets there, he controls. The main thing is that he is always moving toward the cross. Even in those moments where he is reversing direction, when he is stopping to talk, when he is working miracles... Or when he is teaching a lesson. And like every good road trip, Jesus encounters some very unique people along the way. He has some unusual encounters. He works some miracles and he tells some parables that are not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. And so while we are on this road trip with him for the next few months, we're going to be stopping at one one stop along the road each week. Until Easter. And we begin this morning, as Mark said, with what has to be one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him. Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. This is by far the most important takeaway for this expert in the Jewish law. And for us as well. This lawyer had a big theological brain. He knew a lot about the Old Testament law, but it seems he had trouble turning his knowledge into faithful, obedient action. Verse 25 introduces his challenge. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To understand this situation, we should know that if you wanted to genuinely learn something from a rabbi, you sat down. This man does not sit down. This man stands up to challenge Jesus, as Luke says, to put him to the test. And his test centers around a key question that probably most of us have considered at some point or other in our life, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns the question around on him and asks the lawyer what he thought the Old Testament law said. How did he interpret it? The man responded with what we call today the great commandment, which really unites Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agreed with this man's conclusion because Jesus is, of course, entirely consistent with God's eternal will. He is God himself. But then Jesus presents the crucial counter-challenge, saying, do this and you will live. Grammatically, do this is a command to this lawyer to actually live out this God and neighbor-focused love on an ongoing habitual, daily basis in order to inherit eternal life. So while Jesus validates this man's understanding of the law, his head knowledge, what he is really most interested in is this man's obedience to the law. The interesting thing is I think the lawyer completely misses Jesus' point. Because then he tries to make himself feel particularly righteous asking, and who is my neighbor? We could speculate that he's perhaps waiting for Jesus to turn the question around so we can give him some brilliant theological answer. But instead, Jesus replies with a most unexpected answer, one that was somewhere between shocking and probably horrifying to this lawyer. Because he tells a fictional story, about a man traveling down the dangerous and lonely 18-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This poor man is attacked by robbers who not only take his money, they beat him, they, they strip off his clothes, and they leave him lying in a bloody mess, half dead by the side of the road. And along came a priest who was traveling in the same direction, away from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This man would have been considered amongst the elite of Israel, one of the most holy people. But rather than help the man, he passed by on the other side of the road, doing nothing. Now, over the centuries, many people have speculated about why the priest ignored the man's suffering. At the risk of shocking you, I will say that the reason does not matter. It does not matter because this is a fictional story. And if Jesus wanted us to know why the man went on the other side of the road, he would have told us. Because he did not tell us, it means it's not important to the story. The key point then is that a very proper citizen of Israel, one of the better sorts of people, did not lift a finger to help this poor man. And neither did a passing Levite. The Levites were temple assistants. They were also highly respected. Again, they were the the right sort of people. And this Levite also avoided this man. And once again, Jesus doesn't tell us why. So we're not going to spend time thinking about it. I will note, however, that immediately before this encounter with the lawyer, Jesus had rejoiced... That the matters of the kingdom, the things that were important to God, were being hidden from the wise, from the elite, and were being revealed to the children, to the average people. And ultimately, the lawyer, the priest, and the Levi are those wise and understanding who are missing the point of the kingdom. Next came a Samaritan who took pity on the man. He rendered first aid. He he cleaned him up. He, he disinfected him. That's what the oil and the wine served to do. They, he bandaged up his wounds. Then he loaded him up on his animal, whatever he had been riding to that point, and he walks alongside him on the dusty road to an inn where he pays a substantial amount of money as a, as a down payment or an advance guarantee for this man's care and feeding with the promise to come back and pay anything additional that's required. We have to understand that a Samaritan, which in English has come to mean a nice, helpful person because of this story, was utterly and completely despised, hated by the Jews in the first century, and the feeling was mutual. To the lawyer... A Samaritan was a hated, heretical half-breed. This is ugly language, but this is how they viewed them. The Samaritans were the result of intermarriage between a bunch of resettled Assyrians and some leftover Israelites after the collapse and uh, uh, destruction of the northern kingdom some eight centuries prior. They had cobbled together a sort of pseudo-Jewish religion that was basically an insult to true Judaism. And there had been centuries of bad blood, including at times open warfare, between the two groups. It is very difficult, I think, for us in comfortable Western 21st century America to even begin to conceive of how much the Jews despised the Samaritans and vice versa, unless we have had close personal contact with someone who was a committed bigot or racist. And yet Jesus makes this object of contempt the hero of his story. Because he asks the lawyer this crucial question, which of these three men, the priest, the Levite, or the disgusting Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor? This idea of proving is critical, right? It means really demonstrating it, not just talking about it. It is the other side of the coin labeled, do this and you will live. Do this, prove it. Do this, prove it. When the, when the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus gives his concluding command you go and do likewise. These words reverberate across the centuries because they remain just as valid for us today here at Lakeridge Baptist Church as they were for this self righteous, big headed lawyer 2,000 years ago. So let's examine these twin commands to go and do. Since Jesus commanded this man to live out the great commandment in order to live, it, it could seem like he's offering salvation by good works. Right? That he's telling this man, all you got to do for eternal life is to do some loving. But on the contrary, this command of Jesus' points to all of our need for a Savior. You see, once again, grammatically, Jesus' instruction was an ongoing command in the original language. An everyday habit, a characteristic of you that you do this, and it is quite impossible for us to obey it completely on our own. On our own, it is impossible to consistently, habitually, continually love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, because all is a lot. It sounds inspiring. It rolls off the tongue. We memorize it really well in Team Kid or whatever we did when we were younger. But on our own, by our own strength, it's just a goal. It's nothing more than an impossible dream. No matter how hard we try, how self-righteous we are, like the lawyer, at some point we're going to choose ourselves over God. At some point we're going to choose our own comfort or our ambitions, our career, our goals, our desires, or our wealth, or our family above pure, perfect, devoted love for god it is simply inevitable if we are trying to do it on our own and if we think loving god properly is hard that's nothing compared to trying to love our neighbors as ourselves this is northern virginia we probably don't even know all our neighbors in the immediate block much less our larger community right and even if we like them we certainly don't love them that much right They're so different from us. How could we possibly love them as much as we love our own family and our own self? Once again, the answer is that on our own, we can't. There is no hope that our personal devotion and commitment to love could possibly be good enough, habitual enough, continual enough To earn us eternal life. That's the bad news that Jesus is delivering here. The good news is that God knows this and he loves us anyway. And so he sent his son Jesus to the earth. Not just to teach and tell fascinating parables. And work amazing miracles. But to go to that cross. He came to make this very road trip that we are now coming alongside him to witness. The road that ends at Calvary, that ends with Jesus' broken, bleeding body nailed to a Roman cross. And he did that to pay the penalty for our sins, for the penalty for all those times that we fail to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, the one we deserve for all the times we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. He paid that penalty for everyone who puts their faith in him as Lord and Savior, who repents of their sins and their shortcomings and asks for God's forgiveness in Christ. That's the good news. But there's even more good news, because as believers in Jesus Christ, we are also filled with the Holy Spirit, the one who gives us the ability to love God more and more with more and more of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, who gives us the ability to love neighbors and strangers the same way we love ourselves. And this means that obedience to the great commandment, that, that loving God with everything we've got and loving our neighbor as ourself cannot be, is not the source of our eternal life. Instead, that consistent love for God and others is the evidence of genuine life-changing faith in Jesus Christ. That if we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit will work within us to reshape us into the very image and nature of our Savior. And it is this Spirit who enables us to love God and others supernaturally and consistently. And so in light of that, we need to understand that go and do is also a command to us. It wasn't just for that lawyer. We're not just saying, huh, that's a great story. This is a command for us as believers in Jesus Christ because only believers in Jesus Christ can actually live out this command. And we also need to remember that because it was a command and because the Great Commission tells the disciples to go out and teach everyone to obey everything he commanded, that it is a command that goes generation to generation, ongoing, passed down from one disciple to the next that this command stands for all believers. We too must go and do. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now leaving nothing to chance, right? Because he is dealing with a lawyer, Jesus adds an intriguing word after go and do. That word is likewise. We are to prove our love for our Lord and our neighbor in the same manner that the good Samaritan did. Doesn't mean we have to walk along the road looking for bloody naked people who need help. It means we need to love in the same manner as the Samaritan. So the question I want to focus on is, what does it mean for us to love our neighbor likewise? both as individuals and as a church. What was the Samaritan's love like? Well, first, his love was inconvenient for him. The Samaritan encountered this poor man, quote, as he journeyed. He was going somewhere. He had something to do. He didn't just walk the Jericho Road for no good reason. It was quite clearly a dangerous road. So he had somewhere to be, some business to transact perhaps, or someone to visit, and yet he stopped to help. The need to care for our neighbor seldom comes when it is convenient for us. Instead, it usually seems to come when we are very busy doing something else that seems really important. Loving our neighbor is likely to make us late. It is potentially quite messy. Loving our neighbor is not usually something we get to schedule in advance. And certainly the Samaritan didn't. He had no idea what was going to happen. And we are called to love likewise. Loving our neighbor is also inconvenient in that it's not usually something we get to do in the comfortable confines of this building. Samaritan was out on a lonely road. Loving our neighbor is out there. Loving our neighbor out there, right? Out there is where our lost and hurting neighbors are. Out there is where there are people who are in need at any given moment. Out there is our field of ministry and love. Now, if they should happen to come inside, some of our neighbors should come inside here, then, of course, we must love them here as well. Second, the love of the Samaritan was intentional. Loving our neighbor is something that we have to look to do intentionally, right? He doesn't just trip over the man and then help him. He sees them, but lots of people saw the man and walked by. He chose to get involved. He chose to see, he chose to stop and get involved. He chose to make a difference. We must do it intentionally or we are going to overlook most of the people who are in genuine need of our love and care. We are always hustling and bustling here in Northern Virginia. right? And many of us, myself included, have mastered the art of not looking around so that we can get to our destination because whatever it is is super important. And when we do that, we don't see the people who are in need. Jesus says to that Samaritan that when he saw him, he had compassion. He saw him and he saw him clearly enough that there was an emotional response, a choice to let that thing he saw work into his heart. We have to be on the lookout like the Samaritan. We have to be willing to let what we see affect our heart like the Samaritan because we are to love likewise. Third, the Samaritan's love was practical and thorough. Note well, this Samaritan didn't just wish his victim well and promise to pray for him. Scripture is clear. He rolled up his sleeves. He went to work. He rendered first aid, and he could have stopped there, bandaged him up and leave him by the side of the road, but he didn't. Right? He took the man to where he was certain that others would care for him. He paid them to care for him. He made arrangements to follow up, to make sure that he was healing well, that he was well cared for, and to settle any costs and expenses beyond his original provision. All right? That is complete, practical, thorough care. That is the love of the Samaritan, and we are to love likewise. Loving our neighbors has to be fundamentally practical. I think here of some folks in our congregation, like Glenn and Debbie, and the, and the disaster relief trips they've been taking, right? That's practical love for neighbors, not the immediate next block neighbors, but neighbors other parts of this country. I picture the support the church gave to those affected by the multi-house fire in Thousand Oaks. That was practical. And of the, the practical care and support for a staff and students at Rockledge. Right, we are to love likewise, Fourth, for the Samaritan, his love was costly. It cost him money and time. Right? Two denarii, we don't necessarily have a good context for that in our culture, but a denarius is typically a day's wage. He spent two days' wages on caring for this man. That's the upfront cost of this. And if, if you think about what you make in two days, right, as a percentage, that's a, that's a substantial amount of loving that he showed for this random stranger he found beaten on the side of the road. This was a costly love, and we are to love likewise. Our love for our neighbors, both personally and as a church, should be costing us something. And the question is, is it costing us? Is it a meaningful portion of our personal budget? Is it a meaningful portion of our church budget? Does our love sting financially? Fifth, the love of the Samaritan does not discriminate. In this parable, the hated, half-breed heretic was the hero. The love for our neighbor applies to all our neighbors, not just the ones who look like us, who dress like us, who vote like us, who speak the same language as us, with the same accent as us, or who worship the same God as us. Everyone is our neighbor, and our love for our neighbors must cross racial, ethnic, income, social, and religious boundaries. The Samaritan didn't care about Jew versus Samaritan, about clean versus dirty, about sick versus healthy. He just loved. We are to love likewise. For each of us, and collectively as a church, this includes loving those who make us terribly uncomfortable. So take a moment and picture whoever, whatever type of person or group it is that makes you most uncomfortable. I guarantee you, you probably have something or someone in mind. Maybe it's about race or age. Maybe it's about lifestyle or social class. Maybe it's about education or homelessness or mental illness. Maybe it's the illegal immigrants the chronically unemployed, the abused, the criminal, the Muslim or the Hindu. They are all our neighbors. They all have needs, and the most fundamental of those is the need to experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is clear. We cannot simply be collectors of Bible knowledge. We cannot be like the lawyer. Instead, we must Go and do likewise. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would transform us into people who do indeed love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Who do indeed love our neighbors as ourselves and recognize that each person out there is our neighbor. Each person out there is created in your image and needs your touch and your love. Help us to be people who are faithful to love in ways that are practical, that are costly, that are intentional, for your glory and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.